Lord God, we thank you for your amazing love for us that um, you sent Jesus Christ on the cross, Lord, to forgive us of our sins, to uh, rescue us um, in the midst of our own sinfulness. And Lord, we take this day to just honor and worship you, and we thank you for your great love for us, and it's in your most precious name we pray, amen. You all may be seated. Again, thank you for joining us online, and I want to, those of you who are online, I want to encourage you that um, uh, we always have communion every single week, but uh, this Sunday is going to be particularly special, and so I want to make sure that if you haven't yet gone and got some bread and juice to be able to have communion with us, that you do that. Those of you here, we have communion ready for you. But again, thank you for being present today. So what as you think back over the past many years or the years of your life, what would you say has been, uh, in your mind, one of the most miraculous kind of rescue that has ever taken place? Um, you know, amazing, miraculous kind of a rescue. For me, I think all the way back to October 1987, it was a young 18-month-old named Jessica McClure. Jessica McClure. We knew her as Baby Jessica. And so what happened to her, her and her mother were at her mother's sister's house or her aunt's house, and she fell down, Jessica did at 18 months down, this well, this shaft, she fell down some 22 feet to the bottom. And I remember that very clearly because our, our kids were very close to that same age at that period of time. And so over the next two and a half days, she was stuck 22 feet beneath the surface, and they were trying to figure out what to do. Rescue workers worked around the clock. CNN filmed it. It was one of those first kind of, you know, 24-hour kind of film things that people saw there. They used a rat hole rig, which was a machine designed to dig holes for telephone poles. And so they, beside her, they dug this Two feet deeper than where she was, they dug a tunnel across, and then here is a picture of them bringing her up to the surface. This is a, somebody won a Pulitzer Prize for this, but it was one of those amazing, miraculous kinds of things, an amazing rescue, and I remember that so very clearly. So what kind of rescue do you remember? So today, we begin a discussion to remind us that in one way, we are all like baby Jessica, in the sense that we are trapped um, in a place that we have no, uh, no way to be able to rescue ourselves from that, and that God sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue us, and because of our loving Father in heaven, um, you are actually the greatest rescue that God has ever provided to this world. So the new series we're in is simply entitled Rescue. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, you know, in the Garden of Eden, man has needed rescue. Um, you know, the time of David, the time um, of the prophets, mankind has all needed rescue. But in order for that rescue attempt to be successful, what God had to do was send his only son, and he put his life in place of yours or of my life so that we could be rescued. And so what we're going to do is, as we continue this year in our study through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to spend time in what's called the Passion Account of Luke. So it's Luke chapter 22, 23, and then, of course, the Resurrection Account is Luke chapter 24. 
And today we come to Luke 22. So I want to encourage you to take your Bible or your phone out. There's Bibles in the seat if you want that. Turn to Luke chapter 22, which is the celebration of the Passover. But before we get to that, I have to make a confession to you. Um, I am a very forgetful person. I mean, I can forget where I laid my glasses. I can forget where I put my keys. That's why we have key hooks right by the back door. Of course, I have to remember to put my keys on the key hooks, right? I mean, I can forget somebody's name, you know, even before mask. I could see somebody's face and think, I know that person. I can forget somebody's name that I've known for years and years and years. Now, most of the time, my forgetfulness is embarrassing or it makes me late for something like that. But sometimes there are things that you forget that, well, you pay a higher price for, right? Don't forget the anniversary. You know, don't forget the birthday. Those are things you can pay a very high price for. But there is one event that if we forget, if it begins to slip away from our mind, this one event can begin this journey down a road that literally can take us further and further away from God. To forget about the saving work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross is to start down a path that can bring us to a point in which life is meaningless. Now, my guess is you, you probably can relate to some of my forgetfulness. Some of you may be forgetful of some kinds of things, right? But I guess you could also relate to this sense of forgetting about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because there are some of us, right, that we can go through a day, sometimes it could be a week, sometimes it could be a month, you know, sometimes it could be even longer, where, you know, the furthest thing from our mind is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and what he did for us. And the reason is, is because it's natural to be forgetful, right? It's something that we all wrestle with. And so what God does, because he made us and he knows how we are, what God did for us is God gave us a simple meal to remind us about the cross of Jesus Christ. To remind us that because of Jesus Christ, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are valued. And why did God give us this meal? And I think it's because of this. To remember Jesus' death is to remember the power to really live. When I can keep the death of Jesus and what he did for me in my mind, it's like it transforms me to really being able to live for Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 7 through 20. Um, and then we're going to talk about this meal and its significance in our heart and our life and just how important this meal is to all of us. So this is Luke 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover and when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, 
I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Luke begins this account um, with the arrival or discussing the arrival of a significant celebration in the life of the nation of Israel, which is the Passover. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So the day of unleavened bread is actually a week-long celebration that the Jews had. There were three different celebrations that they had to make the trek to Jerusalem, and this is one of them. But Passover was celebrated at the same time as this feast of unleavened bread, and no Jew would miss the celebration of the Passover. And so Jesus and his followers here, his disciples, these guys, they are having this meal together. Verse 8. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? Now, to me, this is interesting because he's telling two guys, you need to go make a meal. Okay, that gets most of us guys in trouble. Now, I know some of you are much better cooks than others, right? My son's a great cook. Um, but for me, it's like this, send, this would send me into a little bit of a tizzy. And I think they're like saying, Peter's like saying, what, what you, want, you want us? You want us to make the meal? Are you kidding? You know, I mean, you're going to have to give us better instructions. And so Jesus does that. He provides them actually some very detailed instructions in this. But before we talk about what Jesus shares with them and these detailed instructions, I want to remind you of something. This is the last week of the life of Jesus, all right? So he is soon to go through the trial and the execution. And the events swirling around Jesus are causing all kinds of stress in his life. Number one, they are sleeping out on what's called the Mount of Olives, so they go outside Jerusalem and they're, they're camping. Camping is exhausting. We'll say real camping, right? Sleeping when you're camping is exhausting. Then he has been teaching all day long. In fact, he's been teaching for several days in a row. When I'm done teaching on Sunday morning, I have to go home and take a nap because I am just exhausted. He's done it all day long. Then you have the religious leaders who have gone from just antagonistic to Jesus to the point where they are plotting to kill him, they want him dead, and Jesus knows that. And then finally, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the trial that he's going to go through and the kind of pain and agony that he's going to go through, the things that they're going to say about him, and he knows ultimately about his death on the cross. And it's almost like circumstances are swirling out of Jesus' control, but they're not. And I think Luke goes to great pains to demonstrate the fact that though Jesus is under great stress, he is in control. In fact, you and I need to know that no matter what's happening in our life, God is always in control. God is never out of control. And we see it in a very simple way how Jesus plans for this meal but we also see it in a more significant way in the meaning of this meal or the celebration of this meal. So 
first we've got these preparations. All right, so Peter and freaks out here about he's having to prepare, and so Jesus gives him very clear instructions. So verse 10, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house where he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. So Jesus has given them line by line, right? It's almost like they're following a script in a movie. I mean, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what you're going to find, and it was exactly the way Jesus said it. And again, this is in Luke recording the words of Jesus to demonstrate he's, he's not out of control. This is something that he knows is going to be taking place. It's like divine direction, divine provision are all at work. God is in control. But there's a way more significant thing in the celebration of this meal that demonstrates the great control of God, that he is working in this situation. And so this is the, the Passover, okay? So what, what is the Passover? So you can go back to Exodus chapter 12, and you can find about the teaching of the Passover in that particular passage of Scripture. The Passover was a very si simple meal. Um, it had some elements. It had like unleavened bread, it had bitter herbs, it had wine, but the most significant part of the Passover meal was the lamb that they sacrificed there. Each part of that meal was very symbolic, so it was given to the Jewish nation as they were about to leave Egypt, right? God was about to unleash the tenth plague upon the nation of Egypt, and the tenth plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And so God was sending the death angel, and he was going to go throughout the whole nation of Egypt. And the only way to protect the firstborn, according to the instructions from God, was to take the blood of that Passover lamb that you sacrificed, and take the blood of that lamb, and you wipe it or you spread it on the doorpost of your front door. And by doing that, on the outside, by doing that, when the death angel goes through the nation of, Israel, of Egypt, he sees the blood, and what will he do? He will pass over that house, and death will not come to that house. Now, again, you've got to remember, a part of what Luke's doing here is revealing that God is in control, and he is helping to connect the dots. Remember, this, this was written to a guy by the name of Theophilus, who's like you and I. We're we're living the way Jesus wants us to live, but we need some confidence, right? We need some things to help us. And so he's kind of connecting the dots there. And here's what we know. The Passover meal was not just about that specific event that took place, you know, hundreds of years before this as Israel was beginning to leave Egypt. But every time they celebrated that Passover meal, which was an annual thing, Every time they celebrated that meal, they sacrificed a lamb, and that blood of the lamb was spilt. Even though maybe they didn't realize it, they were pointing to a future lamb who would give his life for the entire world. And the timing of the death of Jesus was not random. God didn't just say, well, let's, uh, you know, let's pick this date right here. 
It was specifically tied to the Passover. It was symbolically representing that Passover meal, what Jesus was about to do. And it's no wonder John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and declared, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the Passover provided a way for the Jews to remember God rescuing them from Egypt. But it had an ultimate meaning that could only be found in the Lamb of God. And as we begin to reflect and meditate and think about the implications of God planning something like that for such a long time, it begins to speak of how God sees us and how God loves us. See, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the greatest rescue mission ever, but it's been planned since the beginning of time. In fact, you go back to the very first book of the Bible, the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve eat the, the fruit, right? And God begins to speak to the serpent, and then Eve, and then Adam. Here's what he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or hers. He will crush your head. That's what the Messiah would do to the serpent or to Satan. But he will bruise your heel. That was pointing specifically to the cross of Jesus Christ. And then you go to the very end of Scripture. John, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, points again to it when he speaks about the Lamb's book of life in Revelation 13, 8. He says, the Lamb, notice this, who was slain from the foundation or the creation of the world. And so you and I need to remember that this sacrifice of Jesus and what Luke is talking about here this isn't something that God just kind of thought up at the spur of the moment. God loves you and me so much, the world so much, and he knows our needs so much. He's been planning this for thousands of years. So now Luke goes back then to the actual account of the Passover, this meal. He continues the story. So verse 14 says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I eagerly desire to eat this from you, with you. I mean, this is a kind of a Jewish term that just meant he just, there was great emotion that's in Jesus because he knows what's coming and he just wants to spend time with people that he trusts that love him he just wants to be around those people he says I eagerly desire before I suffer now again they didn't have any clue about this Jesus had been telling them again and again and again about the fact he's going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and the Romans and he's going to die on the cross I mean he's been telling them that but he's like I want to do this before this horrible time comes and then he says uh, mentions about finding fulfillment in the kingdom of God I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God so that term fulfillment, again, we talked about, I think it was last week, about fulfillment is that glass that you're pouring full, and when it gets all the way to the top, it, it's been fulfilled, right? And so the fulfillment of what Jesus is doing will happen at his death, but he's not going to partake of this meal again until the kingdom of God comes. Now, he's not talking about the Passover again. He's talking about this new meal that he's bringing to bear here that we're, we're going to be learning about. But this kingdom of God 
what represents God's kingdom on this earth? Well, it is the church. It is the new Israel. We are the kingdom of God. So what happens next is the Passover meal with its varied elements. But what Jesus does is he moves the Passover meal from a reminder of a past rescue to a reminder of a present rescue. So look again in verse 17. He says there, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So again, it's the Passover, which I don't think any of us are Jewish, so maybe we don't understand the Passover, but it's a very cultural thing. So by the time Jesus comes along, the Passover not only has the elements originally given, but there's been some things added by way of tradition. That often happens to things, right? So by the time Jesus comes along, there were actually four cups that a Jew would drink on the Passover celebration, four different cups, and each one of them had meaning and significance, and they were tied to Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. So look at this passage. This is from Exodus 6, and I've put in yellow these highlights that ties to each one of the cups. So he says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. So that's the first cup. That's what it represents. That is the cup of sanctification, right? I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Here's the second cup. I will free you. So that's the cup of deliverance when they drank the second one. I will free you from being slaves to them. And here's the third one. I will redeem you. So that's the cup of redemption. I will redeem you from an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you. So that's the fourth cup, which is the cup of praise or even sometimes called the cup of acceptance. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now Luke, if you notice, mentions two different cups. Now all of the other gospel writers only mention one cup. Luke's the only one that mentions two different cups in this particular passage. Now we don't know if Jesus and those guys had four cups and they drank out of four cups probably if they were, you know, observing this according to, you know, kosher tradition. But what we don't know is which cup was Jesus picking up and drinking that very first time, right? He takes a cup before the meal, then after the meal he takes another cup. The first cup, we don't know what it is, but what we do know is that Jesus takes the symbolism of the Passover and he transfers it upon him and his sacrifice which is to come. So there's two key elements that we know about. First of all, we have the bread. And the bread, as Jesus says, verse 19, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now the bread was specifically in the Passover unleavened bread, bread without yeast. There was reasons for that, right? Um, but he took that bread and he broke it and he gave it to them, but then he changes the significance of that from the Passover to what? This is my body. 
It's been broken for you. Of course, at that time, it hadn't been. And they didn't know. Again, they didn't understand that in their mind. But he took that and he says, this is in remembrance of me. And so we take the bread, not to remember what happened back in Egypt, but what, to remember what happened on the cross with Jesus Christ. So we have the bread and then we have the cup. Verse 20. It says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So again, it's the Passover meal that's happening, each of the different elements of the Passover meal. And so Jesus takes the cup. Now, we don't know which cup Jesus takes, but most commentators think that Jesus took the third cup, which was the cup of redemption, in other words, just another way that he's symbolically taking what they had practiced for hundreds of years and tying that to himself. But we don't know that's the cup he took, but what we do know is what Jesus said about that cup. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the word covenant is a word that has to do with an agreement, or um, it is a promise. It's Tied, though, mostly to a relationship. It's not like a contract, but it's an agreement. It's a promise. And you, th you find covenants all throughout God's Scripture. Like today, in my reading, I'm in um, Genesis 6, and it's the flood, right? And God makes a covenant with Noah to protect him and his family all during the flood. So a covenant is basically God saying, I'm going to promise to do this, and when God says it, it happens, and then we can join into that covenant by obeying the dictates of that particular covenant, or we can go under the curses by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with that covenant. So when Jesus here says, this, you know, this is the new covenant in my blood, he's changing something. He's taking the law of Moses, which was given soon after they left Egypt, the covenant of law or the Mosaic covenant that they had been under all the way up to the time of Jesus' death. And he's saying now that covenant is becoming a new covenant. And at this meal, there was a decisive turning point that takes place that impacts the entire Jewish nation. In fact, it impacts all of us here. And with the death of Jesus Christ and his blood being shed, the old covenant is displaced by the new covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, not spread on a doorpost of a house, but on the cross in which he died. And so a simple meal was provided by God so that we would always remember what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Because to remember Jesus' death is to remember Remember the power to really live. So here's what you and I face in our lives. There is so much in our life to cause us to forget about what Jesus Christ has done for us, to pull us away from God's love for every single one of us. I mean, every day we all battle with, you know, temptation and sin and lies and internal struggles there is this internal spiritual battle that's taking place that most of us have some kind of grasp or understanding of. But it, it makes life so very difficult. And as a believer, we have a sense of the spiritual battles, but at times, what happens? 
we get so distracted by life, by the things of life, both good and bad, so distracted that it's so easy for us to forget what really is happening inside of us. We just get all worked up because something's going on and we don't really understand what it is. But we have an enemy (coughs) who wants to deceive us and destroy us, but this enemy is unseen. That's why it makes it so difficult. And the strategy of our enemy, um, the strategy that he employs to, to, to try to get us to turn away from God rarely involves wholesale mutiny. You know, most people don't just, oh, today I don't want to have anything to do with God. To get us to turn away from God, all the enemy needs to do is distract us. That's all he has to do. By busyness, by stress, by work, by challenges in our relationship, by pain, you know, any number of things that he can do there. And we've all experienced this to one degree or another, right? I mean, just think about the last 12 months. How many times have you been distracted like I have? I mean, it's like there's so many things going on where our focus moves from Jesus to, and you fill in the blank, right? I mean, it's happened to all of us in the midst of this. So what does God do? He gives us a simple meal that he invites us to partake of every single week. And his purpose is very clear, to remind us of the death of Jesus Christ and as importantly, how much he loves you and I and how much he values every single one of us. And when we pause at communion and we remember what Jesus Christ did for us, we cannot help but think, I mean, I can't believe how much God loves me. I can't believe how much God values me. And in the midst of that memory and that time, we begin to realize how crucial it is to really live. We're reminded of what's most important in life, the things that we value and are value, the things that are true and the things that are right. And when we at communion stop and we picture Jesus on the cross and we think about his broken body, we think about his shed blood, what happens to us is we're drawn back to what is most important. And with that remembrance, we can really live because we begin to realize who we were and who we are now because of Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul said it in Colossians, Colossians 1:13. For he, that's Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's rescued us. Colossians 1:21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now what? He has reconciled you to Christ's physical by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You're holy. You're free from accusation because of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So why do we celebrate communion? To remember the death of Jesus on the cross and what he has done for us But we no longer look at this meal 
you know, to an annual sacrifice that had to happen every single year to take away sins. But what do we do? We look to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who once for all has given us forgiveness of sins. And so today we're going to remember the death of Jesus Christ together. And I invite those of you who are listening online to use this as a very significant and meaningful time together as well. Because communion is our reminder, our memorial that points to a very, very specific event, the cross of Jesus Christ. And so here in a moment, we'll celebrate together again. Um, you'll have some time. We're going to have some, uh, we're going to sing a song here together in a moment before we have communion. But that cup represents two things. You peel off the top, there's the wafer, his broken body. You peel off the next part, there is his shed blood. And all of us are invited to do that together to remember what he did for us on the cross. And so, here in a few moments when we have this together, I want you first of all, before you even drink the juice and take the bread, to close your eyes and just picture Jesus on the cross for you. And then after you eat the bread and drink the juice, then just say, Lord, thank you for how much you love me. Help me to really live because of your love for me. And again, we don't take communion because we're somehow worthy by how we live. Because we accepted Jesus because we know we're not worthy, right? We take communion to remember that through the blood of Jesus Christ we are forgiven. We are made whole. I don't want to forget the sacrifice of Jesus. Honestly, sometimes in the most difficult moments, it's that remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the only thing that keeps me going at times. Remembering his love for me. To remember Jesus' death is to discover the power to really live. Let me pray for us. Then we're going to worship together. Then I'll come back up here and I'll just explain again about communion, and we will take that together. Lord, <clears throat> how much we love you and thank you for such a simple thing like a meal that can remind us of such a powerful, crucial thing in our life, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so, Lord, as we worship together, Lord, as we then Take communion together, Lord, we do that because of our need for you. And it's in your most precious name we pray, amen.